the text for the sermon is taken from the gospel. If ye, if ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, uh, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The place... Uh, that our Lord's been talking about in John 14, that whole chapter, that place, uh, that state of being uh, that he says he's about to enter into is the abode of the blessed Trinity, the paradise of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You and I both have loved ones and friends who are waiting for us and praying for our well-being uh, with a depth of both knowledge and love that is far beyond our present horizon already there in that place. Ascension Day, Ascension Sunday, last Sunday, we commemorated the event in which our Lord bodily entered into the heavenly reality. Uh, the text for Whit Sunday, Pentecost, uh, takes us back to John 14 and Jesus' promise that his Father will send the Holy Spirit to the church when he ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Blessed Trinity. Not a power, not a force, uh, but a person. The third person of the Trinity, God of God. Uh, just as the proper preface for Trinity Sunday says, For that which we believe of thy glory, O Father, the same we believe of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, without any difference of inequality. Well, first of all, uh, we need to speak of the Son before we can speak of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and of course, you cannot have a Son without a Father. Uh, you cannot have a Father uh, without a Son. Uh, and I mean, that's exactly what the title means. Uh, an offspring, and in this case, a Son. Uh, so, there never was a time when God was not Father. And uh, which means that there never was a time when the sun was not. Are y'all with me? Okay, it's past nine o'clock. Okay, give a little extra to those guys. Another cup of coffee. I've had three now. So this is what you already know, that there never a time when God didn't exist and God has always been Father, which means there's always been the sun. Uh, the Son came from the Father with a mission, and that mission was fulfilled in His incarnation and the work that the Son did in place and time. His mission involved the creation of something that wasn't here before He came. He left something behind. And that which He left behind is a state of being that we call the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. The people of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Ghost. Titus, Paul in writing Titus says, Jesus the Messiah gave himself for us 
that, we might, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, a people, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. It's that zealous of good works that's one of the marks of the Catholic Church. The giving of himself refers to the mission of the Son, which began with his incarnation and included his miracles, his healing, his teaching, casting out demons, all of those things that we read about, uh, including his intentional uh, and, and uh, offering up of himself and his life upon the cross for our sins, his resurrection of the dead, his ascension into heaven, the sending of the Holy Ghost, and his promise to return to receive us to himself. That's the gospel. That's the mission of the Son. Are you with me? That's what the Father sent the Son to complete, and those are the things that he has completed and that are still in process and running on to fruition as time goes by. The giving of... Uh, uh, and, and so the Son of the Father, we know is the Lagos, the, the Word of the Father made flesh. Uh, and it, it, it is, you can be sure that when the Father sends the Word, His Son, uh, into the world with a mission, He sends the Holy Spirit as well. And what I want you to see is that the Son and the Holy Spirit share a mission. The one I just re rehearsed to you in a nutshell, the Holy Spirit and the Son share uh, in that very same mission. It is the Son of God, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, that the disciples saw and heard and felt and touched with their own hands, the ones that he touched, uh, and, and that they saw, and, and as the, John says in his epistle, handle uh, the Son of God, uh, the, the, the very uh, carnal flesh of God himself. And it was and is, it was and still is the Holy Spirit who executes, effects, actually brings about the work of Christ in us and in the world. So Christ is the one who does the work. The Holy Spirit is the one who effects those, those actual deeds. So, for example, uh, just as uh, the Holy Spirit hovered over the Blessed Virgin Mary, and uh, when she said, let it be unto me according to thy word, the Holy Spirit came upon her, hovered, upon her, hovered over her, uh, and, and, and brought about and effected the virginal conception of Jesus. Uh, it was the Holy Spirit who lighted upon the beautiful brow of our Lord when he was baptized. And, and the Father said, uh, uh, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He didn't say anything about the Spirit, did he? Because the Spirit doesn't draw attention to itself, the Spirit draws attention to Jesus. Uh, but it was the Holy Spirit who lit upon him. It's the Holy Spirit through the instrument of water baptism who regenerates every child who is baptized, every adult who is baptized, and engrafts us into the human nature of Christ and thus engrafts us into the church of God and infuses us, and this is what I want you to get because I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Can you hear what I'm saying? Am I talking too fast? No, good. <laughs> At your baptism, you were regenerated and you were infused with heavenly virtues, theological virtues, the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And I want to talk about that in, in just a few minutes. Uh, so the Holy Spirit effects those things. Well, how does he do it? 
I, I suggest that you think of the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of inspiration. The apneus is the word that's used in the New Testament, and it means to breathe into. It's not to breathe into oneself. It's to breathe into something else. It's the exhaling of breath uh, into, into something else. So in that sense, we can think of the Holy Spirit as the breath of God, but that's an analogy because the Holy Spirit is the person, third person of the Trinity. But to see his work, you can recall Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, then he bent down and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He did not do that in the case of other beings. Right? He didn't do that. He didn't do that in the case of angels when he created them. He didn't breathe into the angel, the uh, pure spiritual thought being uh, without any flesh. He didn't breathe into them the breath of life. They're different beings from us. He didn't breathe into any other animal uh, the, the breath of life so that, that that man became a living soul. Okay, something else I want you to keep in mind is that not only did Jesus have a mission uh, that he completed, but our first parent and his spouse at creation had a God-given mission that was appropriate to the image of God, and that mission was the care of creation in such a way as to bring all of creation to full blossom. That was Adam and Eve's job. That is, that is the job of, of man. And that's still our mission, uh, to, bring, to bring all of creation uh, to blossom. It's a way of life. It's a virtuous life. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, ver and it's a, a life that is made up of virtues that are both natural and supernatural. Uh, and I, so I need to say a word about virtues. What, what's a virtue? A virtue is simply this. A virtue is a good habit. That's all a virtue is. A virtue is a good habit. We can clump a lot of different good habits together and we'll call those, we'll call those uh, virtues uh, prudence. There are a lot of ways prudence can be worked out, uh, but so, but it's habitual. Good things that you do that become habitual are habits. Uh, virtues, habits, well, they save time, don't they? For one thing, I mean, you don't have to go through it over and over again. And think about it: you've got a good habit. On the other hand, if you've got a bad habit, you have a vice. If that doesn't save time. That complicates things, and that disorders things more and more so. It's going to take more time to come back and straighten all of that out. Good habits are virtues that save time and affect a character. Okay? That's what I want you to understand, is that the, is that the acting out of virtue and these good habits affect and make a character. Um, so a good habit... Okay, listen to this. Ha good habits are habits of the intellect and the will. The intellect, that is, I have a, I have a conviction about justice. 
there's true justice, and I want justice. That's an intellectual conviction. The will that's affected is I want to do justice, and I want to see justice done. That's a virtue. So a virtue is a habit of the intellect and the will. Uh, uh, it, they, they are convictions that are well-grounded dispositions that enable us to order our passions and to practice self-mastery. Okay. Order our passions and to practice self-mastery. One of the problems with the fall is that our passions have become unleashed upon us and upon the rest of the world and their disorder. Good virtues, good habits help us order our passions to control, to appreciate our passions uh, and not let them run amok. Self-mastery enables us to care for creation and to bring it to full blossom. Okay, that's important to remember. The way we fulfill our mission that God has given us, which is to bring creation to full bloom, is to control our passions. But we don't because of the wounds of the fall. And so waiting for full bloom, we don't wait. I want what I want when I want it. So I pluck the bud before it blooms. And this is a problem with our relation uh, to creation, I mean all of creation too, including uh, the, those little creatures that come in, those little strangers that come into our homes uh, named babies. Uh, we have a relationship to them uh, which is to practice virtue to them and to bring them to full bloom and full blossom as well, but everything else in the world. Okay. There are a lot of virtues, but, but, but natural virtues fall into four categories that you know. You all know this. I know that. Cardinal virtues, cardinal meaning basic, uh, substantial, uh, 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 gr the ground of. Temperance, fortitude, uh, prudence, and justice. These are natural virtues that are all over the world. Everybody... Every, everybody, every, you can't ask anybody and they'll say, well, let's try to practice injustice. I think that'll be a good idea. Nobody believes that. Regardless of what culture you come from, no one says, we think it would be a good idea for all, all of us to be imprudent for a while. Uh, and let's see how that works out. Nobody does that. Everyone knows that's not good. But now here's a problem. These are kind of virtues. These are kind of virtues without content. So where's the content come from? The content comes from whatever culture you're coming from. That's where the content comes from. It comes from what your family has taught you or what your, your culture has taught you justice is or what fortitude is or what it is to be, uh, 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 what it is to be cowardly about. And so those are, those are things gonna be very different and also wrong because the cultures, not only are you and I individually wounded by the fall, but the cultures that we live in are wounded by the fall as well. And so we get skewed and disordered understandings uh, of, of, these, of these virtues. Um, 
So because of the wound of the fall, it's become very difficult to make any progress in our life, for cultures to make progress in cultures and to grow uh, as, vultures, uh, as, as virtuous people and uh, virtuous cultures. So our interior life, our way of relating to the world and to ourselves is wounded, uh, but it's pitifully disordered, and that means that we're headed for death, and not only that, we're, all, we're gonna miss the mark uh, on what it means uh, to bring creation to full bloom. And, and we'll think then that uh, we can uh, manipulate creation uh, and we can misuse creation, which we do constantly, all the time. In, in, in every way that we can imagine for our life, we misuse creation. It's part of our job to straighten that out. So if that's, that's what happens. However, here's the good news. All that's bad news, I know. Everybody looked kind of down into the dumps. Good news, we're not left to just those virtues because uh, the center of our life as Christians uh, are the heavenly virtues or the theological virtues, and those are outright gifts from God, and every single one of you, every one of you and your children baptized have been infused by those theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And it's those virtues that will give content to the other virtues I'm talking about. Are you guys confused? Nobody? Okay, don't, don't say, yeah, okay, you're boring me to death. Okay. The heavenly virtues are not acquired by human effort like the others. Uh, we do not acquire them through Christian education. They are like our very existence, pure gifts from God pure gifts that you're infused with at creation. Uh, not at creation, at baptism, that's recreation. Uh, and, and so it enables us to, not, uh, to know God, those gifts, the gifts of God that enable us uh, to know God through the virtue of faith. That's what faith is. Faith is not faith in me. No, it is not. You don't grow and develop faith in one another. That's not what that is. The theological virtues are virtues that we exercise toward God. It is faith in God. That's what the theological virtue of faith is. Hope is not hope so. Uh, hope is not hope this, well I hope that part's not true or I hope that part is true. That's not it, and it's not, I have hope in you, or I have faith in you that, that you'll fulfill these. That is not what hope is. The theological virtue of, faith, of hope is desire. Remember, we've talked about a little bit about desire. Okay, I'm going to tell you what desire is. Desire is for the future. You don't desire what you already have. You already have it. So you don't desire it. Your desire is, is, is uh, uh, jump-started, by what you want in the future. And it pulls you, it lures you into the future. For a Christian, the desire of God and God's will for all of creation is the virtue of hope. That's what hope is. It's not in you or me, it's in God and God's will, God's finality for all creation. And we know some of that already. We know already that his desire for creation is that it burst into blossom and you're supposed to be the farmers, the husbandmen, 
that bring that about. That's what you do. That's your function. That's God's will for your life and my life. So that virtue of faith is faith in God, the desire, of, the desire for God, and the desire for God's will is the virtue of hope. And the love of God, it's not the love of one another. Yes, are we supposed to love one another? Absolutely, you know that. Yes, we agape one another. We are supposed to, we do that naturally. We love one another. That's not the theological virtue of love, though. The theological virtue of love is our love for God as God. That's what that is. And so, you see, this is what I want to say. The theological virtues now give content and structure to the cardinal virtues. Because the we're not just talking about some vague God here. You know, this is not the Pew Research God. The God we're talking about is the incarnate Son of God uh, and the Blessed Trinity. Okay. Now Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So what I want you to see is that keeping Jesus' commandments is not a matter of keeping a new set of morals, uh, moral precepts, or a revised set of moral precepts. It is rather as you well know, a matter of making a life for yourself and for the people you love. That's what it means to keep my commandments, uh, to make a way of life, a state of being in loving union with Jesus, a state of being that already exists, you're already in it by the grace of God, but now you're called on to cooperate, to recognize and to nurture uh, that state of being. All of this has to do with participation. All of it has to do with desire. I want you to think about desire this week and see how desire is a desire for the future. And what it is you desire is not what you already have because you already have it. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Up until Pentecost, it was correct to say that the disciples had the Holy Spirit, which Jesus does say, uh, they, they had the Holy Spirit with them throughout Christ's ministry right up to his ascension. And then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in the upper room, and, and uh, Jesus' uh, promise that the Spirit of truth would take up his abode in them individually and corporately came to be the reality. So that when your child is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that child is infused in, like an, infused with the heavenly virtues of faith, hope, and charity that the child did not have prior to that baptism. They're born again, they're engrafted into the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they're engrafted into the church of God. Not the Anglican church, not the Roman Catholic church, not the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're engrafted into the one church, the one true, holy, apostolic church of God. That's why, I, I mean, hardly any branch of the Orthodox, of, of uh, apostolic churches rebaptize. It's very seldom that you see anything like that happens because your baptism is a baptism into the church of God. So let me end this way. Not even a paragraph. Yeah, a little bit of a paragraph. Okay. The reality of the incarnation 
will not be made, um, it's really real in our life now, but the fullness and the meaning of it and all that the, its import will not, be, will not be realized until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we will be realizing much of it as we go on. It will be played out and we'll learn more and more about it and we will incarnate it ourselves into our life. Through the heavenly virtues of faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is true God and true man of his mother, Mary, true God of God the Father, true man of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. By the virtue of hope, our desires are fixed upon the will of God for our life and the life of the whole wide universe. And through the virtue of charity, the virtue of love, we love our incarnate God of flesh for his own sake. As as the most perfect of all final causes, and we do that as best we can. We'll do it frailly and not, not perfectly, but we will grow in that perfection, and we will grow in our love for him. That is reality. Everything else that people tell you is reality is not reality. What I just told you is reality, that our participation in the divine nature of God enables us to exercise the theological virtues and to live and to fulfill our God-given destiny of bringing all of creation to blossom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.